0: In a book that is titled Bad Religion, published in 2012, the author points out that the United States has witnessed a hundredfold increase in the number of professional caregivers since 1950. Our society boasts 77,000 clinical psychologists, 192,000 clinical social workers. 105,000 mental health counselors, 50,000 marriage and family therapists, 17,000 nurse psychotherapists, 30,000 life coaches, and hundreds of thousands of non-clinical social workers and substance abuse counselors as well. The author says most of these professionals spend a good deal of their time helping people cope with everyday life problems, not true mental illness. And then he says this, Under our very noses, a revolution has occurred in the personal dimension of life such that millions of Americans must now pay professionals to listen to their everyday life problems. And there is something inside of me when I read that that says... What about God's people? What about the church? We'll listen. We'll help. Uh, we, we know a great source of truth and wholeness. Perhaps uh, some of you have heard of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. In the clinical world, it's referred to as the DSM. It's published by the American Psychiatric Association and it provides uh, common language and classifications for mental disorders. Back in the early 1990s, psychologist Larry Crabb went on record as saying that 80% of the mental disorders that are classified in the DSM were not chemical disorders, meaning that they were curable if those suffering with them could find their way into a healthy Christian community and experience the life that is made possible by the presence of God's Spirit in his people. Some of his colleagues at the time, if you read anything about this, you know that they said to him, Larry, you are, you are you're committing professional suicide to make a statement like that. But it didn't stop him. He went on to, uh, to write a number of books about the the power and the presence of Christ in in healthy, spirit-filled community. On his website, he writes this as his activity for personal growth as a Christian. Involvement with the community of God's people as a teacher, as a friend, mentoring and exploring and writing about Christian life, particularly the role of spiritual leadership and authentic community in the local community church. I love that. Authentic community. When it happens in the local congregation, there is great potential for life transformation and health that cannot be found anywhere else. But the truth is, I think it's rare. And and I think the reason that it's rare is because it's, it's costly. It It comes with a price and we have identified that price together as we have been looking at what it means to live as the body of Christ in the world. We've identified the cost as as sacrifice. More precisely it's sacrifice of self for the sake of others. Putting you and your needs before me and my needs. That is life at its best in the body of Christ. When we are sacrificing self for the sake of the others that God has put around us, as Christ laid down his life for us, so we are called to lay down our lives for one another. And as we've been learning from Romans 12, each of us is called to do it individually in order to create this Diverse, multifaceted, living sacrifice, that singular that Paul uses in Romans 12, a living sacrifice that brings great glory to God. And it is a, an amazing witness to his presence in our midst. And so, last Sunday, we turned our attention to, to the next half of Romans 12, thinking in terms of it as being holy behavior using the last half of Romans as as our primary text. And you may remember that we started into what appears to be kind of a laundry list of just sort of almost random exhortations that Paul is throwing out, but I don't think they're random at all. I think he's, he's offering exhortations as he's inspired by God's Spirit that, that really make sense for the Roman Christians as they live their lives in Roman society. And there is just... There is so much that is pertinent there for us as well. We looked at the first two exhortations. You remember them? First one is, love must be sincere. This is foundational. The rest of them just flow from this first one. The, uh, the word is rooted, you remember, in, the, in the, the Greek word hypocrisy. A hypocrite was an actor on stage. And because love finds its definition in God... God demonstrates his love through saf- sacrificial action on our behalf. That means that if if we are not sacrificing for one another, then the love we claim for one another is fake. We are acting. Our love is not real. It is no love at all. To love one another means that we sacrifice for one another, as Christ sacrificed for us. I read a story this last week about a man who was pulled over by a policeman. Perhaps you have read this as well. As he handed the officer his license and registration, he, didn't, he honestly didn't know what he'd done wrong, and so he asked the policeman. And the officer said, Well, I've, I've been following you for some time, actually. And he said, I, I saw you wave your fist in anger as you swerved around the car that, was in the left lane ahead of you and, and you, were, you were really angry and you were shouting at the driver of that Hummer, do you remember, that, that cut you off at that intersection a few miles back? And then you impatiently honked your horn at this pedestrian who had the right-of-way in the crosswalk crossing the street in front of you. And the man looked at the officer and he said, officer, he said, are, are those crimes? And the officer said, no, those are not crimes. But when I saw the bumper sticker on your car that says, Jesus loves you and so do I, I figured the car was stolen. (laughs) Friends, if we are not, if we are not sacrificing our time and our energy and our resources For those that we say that we love, that we are members with in this body of Christ, our witness for Christ is discredited. And what we say about him will not be taken seriously. William Barclay once wrote that more people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. And more people had been driven from the church by the hardness and ugliness of so-called Christianity than by all the doubts in the world. So not only was Paul concerned that love be sincere, that it be without hypocrisy, that we not be acting, that we not simply be saying and not doing, but he also coupled that exhortation with the words, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. And we saw that the two of them are really linked together. The word that Paul uses there for evil is a word that we see often in the New Testament that describes actions against others. It's persecutions and it's hardships and and it's it's people who are being dealt unfairly with. They are the recipients of evil. And Roman society, as you probably know, was was just saturated with a love for self. Self Self-gratification was a god It was the M.O. of the upper class and there were an abundance of slaves in Rome that were used and abused for the sake of personal gain and personal pleasure. Some estimates put Rome's population as high as, as the slaves in in Rome as high as 40 and 50 percent. And these folks existed to serve the citizens of Rome in countless ways. They were not seen as people, they were seen as objects to be used. And when Paul says that the followers of Jesus, speaking to the citizens of Rome who were a part of that congregation, says you must hate what is evil, what he has in mind, I think in this context, are those things that arise from the human heart that are all about self that are all about love and care for self and personal gratification at the expense and the neglect of others. The word that we translate hate literally means to have horror of. That's why some of the older translations say abhor what is evil. And so not only are we to hate the evil that is being perpetrated on people as they are neglected and treated as objects when we hear of it, when we see of it. But Paul is saying we ought to be horrified when we find that in ourselves. And we will. Because self-care, self-preservation, self-concern is so often rooted deeply in our human hearts. So to cling to what is good is to love others and to sacrifice for their well-being. As Christ has done for his people, so his people are to do for one another. Cling to what is good, Paul says, be like Christ. So let's stand this morning and we're going to read from Romans 12 again, verses 9 to 13. You'll hear these first two exhortations once again and then we'll add a couple of more this morning. Let's read together. Let love be without hypocrisy. My brothers and sisters, again, this is the word of the Lord for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. N.T. Wright says that God's people should read through these verses again and again and feel the simple, practical energy that they evoke. He says they offer a no-nonsense vision of Christian living. He's right. I think the rubber of our faith hits the daily road of living in these exhortations. They are, they're encouragements to godliness. Live this way, Paul says, in order to display the character of God in and through your lives in a culture that does not value these things. Paul's next exhortation to the believers in Rome, as we just read together, is that we should be devoted to to one another in brotherly love so I want you to just turn to a neighbor real quickly and ask that person what comes to mind when you hear those words just maybe an image to love one another, be devoted to one another in brotherly love what, what's an image that comes to mind, ask your neighbor what, what pops into their heads when they hear that okay here we go What was that image that popped into your neighbor's mind or into your mind? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What what'd you hear? Good question. If you've had siblings, I'll bet you had some images. (laughs) Lee's nodding his head. Go ahead. So Lee thinks it's brotherly care, not sibling rivalry. Did anyone have images of rivalry in their head? No, of course you didn't. You liars. <laughs> Zach, what do you think? Sure. And time, time factors into that. What else? What else did you hear? Sure. It is. Let's let's be honest here. This is tough stuff, Rick. That is right on. It is. It is family language that that Paul is using here. You know, the idea of being devoted means that that we are we are committed because there's something bigger than us that's going on here. You know, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, with the love of a family. Now, remember the significant truth that we saw in the first half of the chapter, and then we also saw it in First in Corinthians twelve regarding the diversity of the different members of the parts of the body. Tell me again, where does the diversity come from that God has created here in this body? Say again, Lee? God put it there. Paul clearly says that. Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. He has put the parts of the body together just as he wants them to be. The diversity comes from God. Sharice and I laugh sometimes at the, the differences in our children. You know, how could they possibly have come from the same parents? They are so different. And yet, as the psalmist says, God weaves us together in the earliest stages of our lives. In our mother's womb, God forms us to be exactly who he wants us to be. God loves variety. We're unsettled by it terribly. But God loves variety. But you know what else? The thing that thrills our hearts as parents, Sharice and I, is is the way that our our kids love one another. They're tight. They're they're a close-knit bunch. And they have had their battles. Battles to the max over the years. But they're family. There's something larger at stake. And they understand that. We're family. Some of you know that that my daughter Kelsey was recently engaged, and when Andrew, her fiance, was out here in early June, he uh, we had the conversation together, and he asked for my blessing. He said, "So, guy, he said, do you do you give me your blessing to marry your daughter?" And I said, "Yes, Andrew, I do." But really, you should probably check in with her four brothers. Because they are really protective of that girl. And he looked at me and said, Oh, trust me, I plan to. There is, there's a tightness there. There is, there is an affection. They, and here's the thing. They know each other really well. They mimic and tease one another. Those are some of the funniest family times we have together. They know each other's strengths. They know each other's weaknesses. But there is a mentality among them that is present in a healthy family. And it allows members to be known with all of their warts and wrinkles and imperfections and yet still loved. They are members of the family. I love what G.K. Chesterton said a number of years ago. Love is not blind. That is the last thing that love is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. It's true. God's people don't love one another with a blindness, they love one another with reality. None of us is perfect. We come as redeemed people to the same table, the ground being level at the foot of the cross. That's Paul's point. To be devoted to one another with brotherly love means loving and accepting one another as family because guess what? We are. You look pretty excited about being family. We are. Healthy family members love one another regardless of differences and problems and warts. We are family. (laughs) And I'm sure you returned the favor at some point when you were little. (laughs) There is such a powerful witness when God's people do family well. Some of you know John Ortberg, pastor and, and writer, He says that one of the most important moments of my spiritual life was when I sat down with a longtime friend and said, I don't want to have any secrets anymore. I told him everything I was most ashamed of. I told him about my jealousies and my cowardice and how I hurt my wife and my anger. I told him about my history, my past, all of my sins. I put it all out there. Much to my surprise, he did not even look away. I will never forget his next words. John, he said... I have never loved you more than I love you right now. The very truth about me that I thought would drive him away became a bond that drew us closer together. He then went on to speak with me about secrets that he had been carrying in his life. If I keep part of my life secret from you, you may tell me that you love me, but inside I think that you would not love me if you knew the whole truth about me. I can only receive love from you to the extent that I am. Known by you. To love one another as family members takes commitment. It involves sacrifice that we've talked about, that sacrifice which is foundational to our life together. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough don't run, the committed don't run. They get going together, they tough it out together, they live it out together. Knowing one another, I think, is key to to loving one another sacrificially, which is what we have defined as sincere love. It's what Scripture defines for us. Knowledge of, of need and pain and struggle in one another's lives, as well as the joy and the victories, that knowledge begs action from us. It begs response from us. Jesus said that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to weep with those who weep. I cannot weep with you if I do not know what causes you pain. I cannot rejoice with you if I don't know what your victories are and the reasons that you have for rejoicing. It it takes being intentional and, and knowing one another better than a casual good morning, hi, how are you? On the other hand... If I know the pain in your life, if I know the reasons for your rejoicing, and I do not respond to those things, then I am making no sacrifice in my life for you. And therefore, I must not love you, even if I say that I do. Because love is sacrifice. Because love that gives witness to God and draws people to Him is sacrificial action on behalf of those, especially those who are in the family. Does that make sense? The the message is clear. And it's important to remember that we're not talking just any family. We're talking about the family of God, which all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have been adopted into by, by His amazing and undeserved grace. I think that's why Paul adds the next exhortation right away, honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. We we must remember that, that it is the grace of God that transforms lost and broken people. And it turns them into his children. It draws them into his family. Why does Paul say that we must honor one another above ourselves. I think it's because it's the key to being devoted to one another with a family love. The word honor is one that is used often throughout the New Testament to to describe one person's response to the status of another. Honor is do those, in human terms, do those who deserve it. Honor is due to those who have a position higher than ours. Paul turns the tables here. That would have made perfect sense in Roman society. Paul says, honor one another above yourselves. This was a congregation that was full of diverse people. There, there, were, there were slaves and there were free. There were rich and there were poor. They were famous and not so famous mixed into this congregation called the Church of Jesus Christ in Rome. And Paul says, honor one another above yourselves. I wonder how that went over in that society where where the classes were so clearly delineated. Let's be honest, even in our best moments, as a healthy family, we are tempted to think less of some folk's Than others. I liked some of my kids better when they were little. Than others. We like some of our folks. Better. Than others. I mean that's never true of me of course. But I know that it's true of you. And the corrective and the reminder is. We honor one another. Above ourselves. Why? Because. Every person who is a follower of Jesus is a child of the living God. And my suspicion is, we ought not to be trashing the kids of the king. Honor one another above yourselves. I would so prefer that you honor me. And you would so prefer to be honored by others. Because that's what our human heart does. What about me? I'm worthy of honor. See me, see me, exalt me. That's the thing. In the family of God, none of us is deserving of the honor that we've been given. And therefore, we honor one another above ourselves. Aren't you glad that Jesus is our example and that He didn't take the attitude that is so common to our hearts to make some people more deserving of God's grace than others, to show them honor versus someone else, well, that simply empties grace of its meaning. And Jesus, the one who had every right to exalt himself, well, he didn't. Paul tells the Philippians that he humbled himself and he became nothing for the sake of lost humanity. The reality is this, that each person who is a child of God is a child of the king of the universe. And that makes them royalty. And that's the reason that Paul says we need to honor one another above ourselves. Don't worry about self-honor. You worry about honoring others. If they're worrying about the same thing, you'll get honored in the process somewhere along the way. It becomes this this sort of mutual honor-giving society where God's people are treating one another as royalty because that is, in fact, what they are. So, Applewood family, how are we doing with that? We've said from the get-go that community is messy and inconvenient and difficult. This is nitty-gritty. This is it. But there is so much to be gained, so much blessing to experience in obedience, so much to be lost, so much that is at stake if we do not. So praise team, come on up and I'm gonna offer a bold assignment to the Appwood family. Would you consider this week, under the the direction of God's Spirit, consider a name or two or three Folks in the Applewood family that that maybe you don't know that well. Maybe you don't know them at all. Maybe you don't even know their name and you can just picture their face. Would you be bold enough to tell God this week, I want to live in obedience to your word. I want to love these folks, these names, these faces. I want to love them. And I want to honor them as members of your family and my family, God. How would you have me do that? How would you have me do that? Mm -hmm. And then listen. And see what kinds of opportunities God brings along for you to be a contributing, sacrificial family member for the sake of others who are in our family with us.